Coming up at the Boo at 11, it's Sojourner Truth with Margaret Prescott. And today we hear River of Dark Dreams, Slavery Empire in the Cotton Kingdom, a one-hour special with Harvard University history professor Walter Johnson. If you would like to uh, contribute to community radio, please go to our website, kboo.org, and you can find a button there that says contribute or become a member and uh, help us out. Stay tuned now for Sojourner Truth. KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the film screening of Making Waves, Rebirth of the Golden Rule, on Monday, February 11th from 7.30 to 9 p.m. at the First Unitarian Church in Portland. Making Waves, Rebirth of the Golden Rule is an award-winning documentary film. The Golden Rule is the peace boat that promoted the end of nuclear weapons testing in the Marshall Islands. Again, that's the film screening of Making Waves, Rebirth of the Golden Rule on Monday, February 11th from 7.30 to 9 p.m. at the Buchan Hall at the First Unitarian Church, 1211 Southwest Main Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, today. River of Darkness, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom, the title of a book by Harvard University history professor Walter Johnson. We spend the hour with Professor Johnson. From the days of slavery to the start of the Civil War, he discusses the interrelationship between slavery and the building of empire on both sides of the Atlantic, the expansionist vision of the slave-holding class, the remaking of Mississippi from forested lands to cotton plantations the centrality of slavery to capitalism and the global economy, jails for slaves, and the continuum with today's mass incarceration. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandiri. Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker appears before the House Judiciary Committee this morning, but in remarks released minutes before he was due to appear, Whitaker says he will not disclose deliberations or conversations with President Trump that may be subject to executive privilege. Democrats are eager to press Whitaker during his first testimony to Congress on his interactions with Trump and his oversight of the special counsel's Russia investigation. Whittaker's highly anticipated testimony had been in limbo after the House Judiciary Committee approved a tentative subpoena to ensure that he appeared and answered questions. Whittaker responded by saying he would not come unless the committee dropped its subpoena threat, which he called an act of political theater. The stalemate ended after committee chair Gerald Nadler said the committee would not issue a subpoena if Whittaker appeared voluntarily. 
On Capitol Hill, some Democratic lawmakers unveiled their plans for a Green New Deal to address climate change and social justice. Christopher Martinez reports. A first-term representative and a veteran senator have unveiled their outline for a much-touted Green New Deal. And it's nothing if not bold. Newly elected Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a Democrat from New York. She said, this is a great day for activists, vulnerable communities, and people who have been left behind. And so we're here to say that small, incremental policy solutions are not enough. They can be part of a solution, but they are not the solution unto itself. There is no justice and there is no combating climate change without addressing what has happened to indigenous communities. That means that there is no fixing our economy without addressing the racial wealth gap. That means that we are not going to transition to renewable energies without also transitioning frontline communities and coal communities into economic opportunity as well. Ocasio-Cortez and Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey presented a 14-page resolution staking out ground for a 10-year program to deal with climate change and economic justice. Reporting for Pacifica Radio News, KPFA, I'm Christopher Martinez. The U.S. Supreme Court narrowly stopped Louisiana from enforcing new regulations on clinics that perform abortions in a test of the conservative court's views on abortion rights. The justices said by a 5-4 to four vote that they will not allow the state to put into effect a law that requires abortion providers to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court's four more liberal justices in putting a hold on the law pending a full review of the case. The Senate Judiciary Committee confirmed President Trump's nomination of William Barr as Attorney General. The vote was along party lines 12 to 10. Ranking Democrat Dianne Feinstein said the key question is whether Barr, who previously served as Attorney General in the early 1990s, is the right person for the job at this time. Feinstein cited Barr's refusal to say whether he'll make public special counsel Robert Mueller's report when it's finally completed. She cited a 19-page single-space memo Barr wrote to the Trump White House months before being named to the post. The memo criticized special counsel Mueller's probe and contained what Feinstein called stunning assertions about presidential powers, including the power to oversee an investigation into himself. To argue that the president has no check on his authority flies in the face of our constitutional principles of checks and balances. But the arguments made in Barr's memo go even farther to assert that presidents have no limits on their power to insert themselves in law enforcement matters, even those involving their personal interests. And that can't be acceptable to any of us. I believe the memo is disqualifying. Feinstein also criticized Barr for refusing to say he would defend the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion, for refusing to agree that the 14th Amendment guarantees citizenship to all those born on U.S. soil, and for refusing to acknowledge that waterboarding is torture. Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos says he was the target of extortion and blackmail by the publisher of the National Enquirer, which he said threatened to publish sexually explicit photos of him unless he stopped investigating how the tabloid obtained the texts and photos he exchanged with the woman he was having an affair with. 
Bezos is also owner of the Washington Post. He detailed his interactions with American media, AMI, in an extraordinary blog post. The billionaire didn't say the tabloid was seeking money. Instead, he said the Enquirer wanted him to make a public statement that the tabloid's coverage was not politically motivated. American media is a strong backer of President Trump. Bezos's investigators have suggested the Enquirer's coverage of his affair, which included the release of explicit texts, was driven by dirty politics. That was our news headlines. And now we turn to the interview I did with Professor Walter Johnson on River of Darkness, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom. Now, Walter Johnson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, you focus uh, from the Louisiana Purchase uh, to, I suppose, up to the Civil War. I wanted to talk a bit about the Louisiana Purchase made back in 1803, over 800,000 square miles for just $15 million. So that was a pittance. And the role, how that came about and the role of the Haitian Revolution. Yeah, well, it's it's long been argued, although I think in an undercurrent, um, that the Haitian Revolution was the precipitating cause of the Louisiana Purchase. And this is an argument that goes back to uh, W.E.B. Du Bois in the closing of the slave trade, and or in the, the, the book is entitled Suppression of the African Slave Trade to the United States of America, published in 1899. It's Du Bois' doctoral dissertation. It's a fantastic book that, that everyone should read. But in any event, Du Bois, I think, in, in to my knowledge, is the first person to realize the significance of the Haitian Revolution in... Um, underwriting the Louisiana Purchase. France, um, France's New World Empire, was centered in Haiti, and Haiti was, in, say, 1776, was the richest colony in the world. Um, C.L.R. James writes about Haiti that on no, no other place on the face of the earth was so valuable per square inch as Haiti. But the Haitian Revolution... Um, makes, you know, takes Haiti out of the picture for France. And France's vision of a new world empire had uh, included the Mississippi Valley as a food-producing subordinate colony to Haiti. The idea was that the Mississippi Valley would be the breadbasket that would allow Haitian slaves to um, survive, to, to grind out bitter lives, um, without producing any food for themselves, that the, they would they would eat grain from the Mississippi Valley, and so the Haitian Revolution once um, it, it the Haitian Revolution makes the Mississippi Valley drastically less valuable to France, and that is I think the the condition of possibility for the Louisiana Purchase. Right, and and also took away the fear of some collaboration between France and Spain. Right, and in, in, in defending that territory, perhaps coming together and defending that territory from the rest of the United States. But it's interesting, I'm glad you mentioned C.L.R. James and his book, Black Jacobins. C.L.R. James uh, really talked about the Haitian Revolution as being a huge global event that was just 
um, I think today underestimated. A lot of people don't know about it. But I was interested also in your thesis about the global economy and globalization and, and the role that cotton and what went on in the Mississippi Valley had to do with global capital capital and global capitalism. You know what I mean? People think yeah, that absolutely. it's a new thing, this globalization, right? Right. Well, no, it, it certainly, I think it, it dates, you know, that, that Haiti is the, the leading edge of the global economy of the 18th century. Uh-huh. And what, what I'm arguing is that the Mississippi Valley is the leading edge of the global economy of the 19th century. And um, once, once the Mississippi Valley and, and Alabama and Mississippi are formally incorporated into the United States, through military action, which is to say um, United States military action against Native Americans, against Africans, against African Americans, and against um, whites allied with other European powers. Um, once that happens, is, is the, the, that's really the, the beginning of the takeoff of the 19th century global economy. And that is an economy that is... Um, centered on cotton and land in the Mississippi Valley or, or in, the, in the Deep South, really. And um, that, that land boom and the cotton boom are directly related to the development of industrial capital, capitalism in, um, in the northern United States, but more importantly, in the north of England. And so it is expropriated native lands and black labor that produces the cotton that is the raw material of um, industrial development of the the industrial revolution of the early 19th century. Just um, before you you go on, how does this contrast then with Thomas Jefferson's view in terms of the Louisiana Purchase and the vision that he professed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think that um, Jefferson went through you know several uh, versions of how it was that the Mississippi Valley might be incorporated into the United States. But they were not aggressively commercial visions. They mm-hmm. were explicitly white supremacist visions. And so one of them centers on the notion of free-holding white yeomen, small farmers, independent, self-sufficient subsistence farmers who would be um, both provide a kind of a western border for the United States and would not be subject to what Jefferson saw as the corruptions of industrial capitalist life, wouldn't have to work for a wage. And and so since they didn't work for a wage, they wouldn't be subject to a boss. A boss couldn't tell them how to vote. And they wouldn't get in debt. And so their creditors couldn't tell them how to vote. And so for Jefferson, I think the the dominant vision that he has of the Mississippi Valley, and this is the, the vision that really in the first instance, uh, underwrites the project of the General Land Office to take all of this expropriated native land and and sell it off to small farmers, Um, envisions this as a kind of a small-holding, white yeoman farmer Arcadia. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, in the the event, something quite quite different happens. Right, and and of course, Jefferson, who really didn't want to deal 
with slavery. I read somewhere he had written a letter to somebody saying the whole thing actually gives him nightmares. Right? He's, yeah, right. he's just well, as well, glad for somebody else to deal with it. Yeah, well, that, that's a, another part of his vision. I think once it be, once there's a there's a debate about whether or not slavery should be allowed in these new territories, um, part of his vision becomes that by allowing slavery to spread into the Mississippi Valley, it will be it will be quote diffused, and mm. that the black population will be spread out so far that it will eventually um, disappear. You know, again, in in the event things turn out to be quite the opposite, that the the cotton boom and the expansion of slavery into the deep south leads to to what historians call a second slavery a a reintensification and expansion of the institution of slavery in the united states which had you know in in the 1780s been actually in decline yeah um, but by the by the 1820s is booming yeah. My, our guest is uh, Walter Johnson. He is the Winthrop Professor of History and Professor of African and African-American Studies at Harvard University. And his latest book, River of Dark Dreams, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom. We are discussing uh, his uh, brand new book. Uh, also, the Mississippi Valley, We you talk a lot about the Mississippi Valley. And for our listeners to know that that includes parts of Louisiana, Mississippi, Mississippi, Arkansas, Tennessee, and Missouri. So it's quite right, a large absolutely. And, and really, territory. you know, all the way up to, to Minnesota. But I'm primarily um, concerned with the area below St. Louis, between St. Louis and, and, and New Orleans on the Mississippi River. Right. Okay. So there you have uh, an economy, cotton land slaves, and this uh, slew of people, in addition to those enslaved, the speculators, the slave traders, you have the steamboat, which was uh, a relatively new thing uh, that also helped with that. Um, people grabbing up land. I mean, what a crew! You know, I try to visualize. You know, these people, no, it's, right? It's, right. It's well. There's there's uh, there's a genre literature in the 19th century yeah. describing, you know, steamboat journeys, and and the point being that that um, everybody in the world is on steamboats, and mm. and the the odder the character, the more. Um, likely they are to be found on a steamboat and and so these these boats are seen as you know microcosms of the west of the kind of the rough hewn um, boom times in in the united states and of course you know the the phrase i can't i guess talk about steamboats and say the phrase boom time without <laughs> mentioning how frequently these boats explode these mm. are very very dangerous um Boats, they're absolutely essential to the development of the society and economy of the Mississippi Valley, and they are emblematic of the character of that because they are tremendously speculative and very, very dangerous. Yeah, and they were relatively new uh, as well. Yeah, They were new. The, the first steamboat journey on the um, what's called the Western Waters on the Ohio, the Missouri, the Mississippi is in 1812. Hmm. And and then the I can't um, I, th- I think you know maybe by 1817 there are say 17 boats on the Mississippi, and by 1825 there are 10 times that many. I mean wow. it, it, it's really an exponential sort of explosion of of the economy that occurs right in that that sort of very small window. 
um, that's quite quite a remarkable growth there. It's, it's close to three hundred million dollars of, of cotton every year. It's a it's an enormous amount of of money. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the cotton crop every year is greater in value than the federal budget of the United States, if I remember correctly. It's a terrific. You know. Yeah, and if you try, I wouldn't even attempt to translate that into today's dollars. Two hundred no. million. <laughs> we'll have to get the wait for the economist to to figure that one out. Right. right, right, and just painting a, a a picture for us then of of that region because New Orleans was central, right? Um, in terms yeah, of this whole everything goes through it, mm-hmm. right? The, the entire Mississippi Valley from. Um, you know, from from Minnesota to Missouri to Memphis to Natchez, and you know, all of that produce goes through New Orleans. And so, New Orleans is in 1840 is the second largest port in the United States, and it is the fourth largest port in the entire world. And so, it is. You know, th- this again is um, th- this is the leading edge of, of the 19th century economy. And what the steamboat allows is for that um, trade system to become, um, to, to shrink the trade system. Because, first of all, it allows goods to be shipped upriver. That in the 1810s or 18, even, even into the 1820s, the dominant way of doing business on the Mississippi was simply to put goods from upriver onto a flatboat and let them float down with the current and mm-hmm. to try to ship anything uh, against the current was impossible so people would literally ship flatboats down the Mississippi River and then sell the wood for scrap and walk home you know that was how the economy worked in the 18th and early 19th century well the steamboat changes all that the steamboat makes it it economically profitable for um, certain people um, you know fewer and fewer people over time as, as, as the competition increases to ship goods upriver and and that leads to a, a tremendous economic development. And and there was also an interesting relationship with uh, the the steamboat and that whole culture of the the steamboat and kind of counterculture of the of the steamboat because some black people were or were involved in it and maybe perhaps you know working in it in in some way or um smuggling and escapees and then the color differentiations because the whole one drop of blood thing meant you could have some pretty light skin black people that you couldn't really tell right, right. yeah That's, and and so you know the the one one of the things that I try to to emphasize is that um, the steamboat is the technological and economic predicate for this massive expansion and intensification of slavery. But at the same time, it, provi- it, it, it presents slaveholders with new sorts of problems and, um, and presents enslaved people with new sorts of mobility and possibility. And so one of the... Um, what, you know, the, the, I, it's really striking when you're reading a 19th century slave narrative and, and somebody, and this would be um, Solomon Northup or John Parker, says, I really want it to be sold to New Orleans. And you think, well, you want it to be sold to New Orleans? Why? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, in the 19th century, New Orleans among enslaved people in Virginia is seen as a, a place of slaughter, a place of death. But, but as 
um, enslaved people learned more about New Orleans, or as they got closer or heard from other people, they, they realized that that was a place that you could get on a steamboat, whether you snuck on or actually hired yourself on, um, pretending to be free, or whether you were, in fact, employed on a steamboat as an enslaved person. There are, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of enslaved people who make their way um, out of slavery on steamboats. And then the other, the other thing you mentioned is, is equally fascinating, because there are, you know, really, really fascinating 19th century court cases about the things that happen on steamboats. And one of the things that happens on steamboats, while these people, the, the, the way that some of these people escape is by passing for white. And, um, you know, there are enough court cases documenting this that it is significant in its own right, but one of the things that I argue is that the stories of these people who pass for white on steamboats make steamboat pass, they're, they're well enough known that steamboat passengers start to look at one another suspiciously. Mm-hmm. And to wonder, you know, well, that guy, you know, do you, do you think he's yeah. Portuguese? <laughs> is he Cuban? You know, what, yeah. what, what's the story? And, and, and that, that, I think, is, it, it, it's, it's not the end of slavery, and it's, it's not the end of white supremacy, but it is an interesting eddy of doubt right in the heart of, of the expansion of those systems. Right, and another example of people creatively, you know, finding a way to get out of a bad situation (laughs) Um, into a situation that was bad, but not as bad as as the one before. So here you have with um, the the great Mississippi going down then into the Atlantic Ocean, New Orleans um, also had one of the largest slave markets, didn't it? Yeah, New Orleans is is the largest slave market in in North America. Right, right. So uh, New Orleans then very much the center of what you describe as an international trading system because 90% of the cotton, as you say, ended up in Britain. So, um, yeah. So so one of the things that that I um, am interested in and have tried to, to track the history of is of the transformation, expansion, and um, forced migration of slavery within the United States. So really through the interstate slave trade, um, people sold from uh, places like Maryland and Virginia down to Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Something, you know, around two-thirds of a million, a million people between 1820 to 1860. So really one of the largest forced migrations in human history. Those, all of those sales are, while they occur within the United States, are related to the working of the global economy. They're related to, you know, these are, these are people who, by and large, are being moved from declining areas of tobacco production mm-hmm. to emerging areas of cotton production. And one of the ways that, one of the things that historians long ago did was that they, they graphed out the, historical profile of cotton prices, and they draft graphed out the historical profile of slave prices. And those two graphs fit hand in glove yeah. on top of one another, you know, and, and so the price of slaves tracks the, the price of cotton throughout the, the antebellum period, and the price of cotton is set in Liverpool, you know, yeah. 85, 90 percent of the cotton produced in the United States is 
is shipped to Liverpool. So one one determined the other, definitely the interrelationship. Right. Um, I, I want to get kind of down and dirty into this because you, you talked about the migration, the largest migration of this million slaves, you know, down deeper, you know, into the south. Um, I also want to just remind our listeners that our guest is Walter uh, Johnson, uh, Winthrop Professor of History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. His brand new book, River of Darkness, Slavery and Empire in the Cotton Kingdom. Fascinating, really um, focusing in on global capitalism and early um, U.S. imperialism in the North and South America, as as, uh, the book in part is described. Now, in terms of that migration, I wanted you to, to describe a little bit about the speculators, I mean the, the small guys, the, the ones who went and maybe bought, um, let's say in Virginia or somewhere like that, maybe five or ten slaves, let's say, and then chained them, right, and did this march to deeper into the South where you're going to get a better price. Yeah, that's, I mean, there is a... Um, well-known price differential from really the 1820s on to between Virginia and Louisiana and Mississippi. And the, you know, the, this is a fact which begins to infuse every facet of slavery on both ends of that trade. Slaveholders in Virginia by the 1850s are openly referring to themselves as slave farmers. They're openly saying, well, our, our export crop is human beings. Mm. And they're openly referring to enslaved women as breeders. And yeah, that that this a lot of this trade is overland. It is people who walk or are you know every once in a while somebody will get sick and they'll be put in a cart, but they walk 20 miles a day from um, you know say Fayetteville, North Carolina to uh, Clinton, Clinton, Louisiana, overland. Yeah. Um, or you know the the other. Um, branch of the trade is maritime. It's around the East Coast on boats from places like Tidewater, Virginia, to places like New Orleans. And all told, you know, as I said, we're talking about well over, um, you know, close to two thirds of a million people, maybe maybe more than that. Yeah. So this in forty years. Yeah, this buying, transporting, selling of, of slaves, and then you also describe in in your book this uh, this thing about kind of jails not really jails but holding pens in a way for slaves that could hold up to a hundred at a time and had showrooms and yeah. all this kind of no, thing this is that that if you were to you know that there's a document from new orleans i think it's it's in either 1852 or 1854 i can't remember right now called the census of merchants and they walked around the different neighborhoods of new orleans um cataloging for the purpose of doing a, a new set of taxes what what are the various businesses? Well, there's a couple of neighborhoods in New Orleans where, you know, there is a very very dense concentration of slave pens, is what they were called, and and there mm. you know there are anywhere from, you know, ten to a hundred and hundred and fifty people for sale in in each of these establishments at a time. There's, I think, at the peak of the trade, there there you know around twenty of them in the in the city of New Orleans, and people um, from downriver. Uh, in the sugar-producing parishes of Louisiana and from upriver in the cotton-producing areas, sometimes all the way up to Arkansas, would come to 
New Orleans to buy slaves. Now there there were also a number of of smaller, you know, markets um, all over the all over the Deep South, and you know, Natchez is is a is a fairly famous one at the forks of the road that there's been an effort to commemorate over the the last decade or so. But you know, really, any town with a courthouse, there were were slave sales and legal, um, you know, estate sales and debt sales, so state ordered sales as well as as retail sales, which are really what I'm I'm talking about with the professional slave traders. Yeah, and and they had a way of grading the slaves as well, right? In in terms of yeah, the, the, the women 